Radio. Like touch my shoulder, touch my hair. Starts now. And I said, what the hell is that? quite a ghost just yet but uh we are here in historic old town san diego this is where the very first mission was built by the spanish uh representative of the catholic church father hanupro sarah we'll do uh we're gonna talk about that uh we're gonna do some shows about those uh missions that are littered across the state of california there's a lot of spooky stuff going on there but uh yeah so we're here and uh we're gonna be doing a show tonight i wanted to do a show about one of my favorite movies to see this time of year and as a matter of fact what's really cool is like in the last five years the big cinema houses have uh made this movie available this time of year so you know check the movie theater near your home and see if you can see this but the shining is what we're talking about tonight so we're gonna be talking about the shining and of course that was um the original concept was by stephen king and then stanley kubrick uh ended up producing it and uh so we're going to talk about that story uh if you haven't seen the movie please go see the movie it's a great great movie it's standing the test of time for sure uh, and I thought there'd be no other, no better person to sort of talk about this movie and banter back and forth with than uh, our own Ace Jordan, who's been a part of the shows last this year, uh, the last four or five shows. So, uh, Ace, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Yeah. So, um, Ace, why don't you tell us? So, I don't know if we've been even touched on this in these shows, but. You actually are a movie producer, and you, you've got a film out there that's been out for some time, and you have a passion for filmmaking and uh, storytelling. Mm -hmm. So I thought you could maybe give us you know, your sort of techie background on some things that maybe some of us that just watch the movie and enjoy it aren't catching. You know, Maybe there's some, some stuff going on you know, sort of on the, on the back end as far as like movie production and storytelling that you could kind of bring to light so uh why don't you tell us first of all about your how you kind of got the passion for movies and uh and then ended up becoming a filmmaker and then maybe even tell us a little bit about your film that the first film you you did i guess i just got the passion for for movies from what from growing up in the 80s and watching you know spielberg films and stephen king films and you know later some of Stanley Kubrick films. It was the era, the VHS era, and you could go to the video store and you could pick up pretty much anything, um, particularly horror. It was very big for horror, um, which wasn't pushed as much theatrically as um, you know some of the other bigger budget genres. So um, 
I think maybe that's where it comes from. Just, just being an eighties kid. I see. Yeah. And those, those yeah. were a lot, there were a lot of great movies. And it's so funny because, you know, I, I'm an eighties kid as well. And, um, gosh, those first times nightmare on Elm street and, you know, mm-hmm. Halloween yeah. and, you know, some of those that things. Was, I, think, I think that was pretty much the first horror film I saw was Nightmare on Elm Street. I was like five years old. I rem- so. Yeah, I remember my parents wouldn't let me actually watch it. But, you know, that yeah. year that it came out in the, in the drugstore at Halloween time, there was the Freddy Krueger glove, you know, which every little yeah. boy wanted, right? Like this cool leather glove that's got like these knives on oh, each yeah, fingertip. I, I had it. I had that Freddy glove. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if it was screened. They probably uh, made more money selling the Freddy glove than they did in that movie. You know, if you think about it. Oh yeah. I had the mask, the glove. I mean, he scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, you know, in those movies, you go back and you watch them now, like, you know, another one like Hellraiser, man, Hellraiser mm-hmm. was so scary. It was like this demonic kind of dimension, you know, of these things that would come out that were super scary and just kill you and torture you and you know uh that that was really scary back then but then you go and you watch it now and it's just almost laughable you know the quality of the special effects and stuff you know Mm -hmm. back then people were that was good enough you know but today you know the threshold is so much higher uh it's just crazy to go back and watch them it's inconsistent you know the the practical effects some of them are fantastic and some of them just don't hold up you know yeah yeah um I just think a movie, uh, horror films of that era, eighties uh, and the seventies, like it was like the filmmakers were daring you to watch. Like to them, they wanted you to get up out of the theater and leave. Yeah, <laughs> that was like their ultimate goal for you to be like so grossed out or be so scared that you left. And yeah. now everything's just like, oh, you don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> true. There might be a there might be a kid watching. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is yeah. that the VHS era, I mean, you know, if you're lucky to own a VHS machine or beta Betamax, you know, and go to your local video library or whatever it was in the neighborhood at that time. I mean, that was uh-huh. uh, you know, watching scary movies at home in the 80s on your own on your own thing was a special was a really special thing. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but uh back, let's just say 85 to 87, which is when some people were able to afford a six, $700 machine to play a movie in your house. You know, you could rent the machine from the store that was renting the videotape, but if you, oh, you, you could, yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah. So I that was you, sort of like, right. Yeah. That was like 83, 84, 85. People so really could couldn't go, afford could rent the it. Movie. You could go rent the movie and, um, the machine to play and it. the machine. Yeah. And you could also, you could also buy some of the movies, but they were super expensive because yeah. they didn't want people buying them. Yeah. So, so the movies of a VHS back in those days, you know, if, uh, something blockbuster movie came out, it was like mm-hmm. 89 to $95 for a movie back in 85 when like so, minimum wage was three ten, three dollars and 10 cents. Yeah. So it was, it was mostly just the video stores that would buy them. And then yeah, they would try to make their money back. That's how the whole money. business came to be because, you know, you think about mm-hmm. that, you know, I think about that too. I mean, my parents, you know, didn't have, uh, you know, a lot of extra money, but they were able to swing a $700 video, video, video machine, you know, back then just, you know, middle-class neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of crazy, man, how accessible movies are these days. Sorry about that little beeping going on. You know, take care of that. 
but um anyway yeah so it's it's crazy man but uh yeah so so you you were a horror fan as a kid and then you you kind of uh as you went through school you you got more serious about it huh i'm trying to think what it was um i was in uh junior high like my first year of junior high and um my my writing teacher was a big Shane Black fan, right? which is ironic because I actually know Shane Black, and um, he had just sold. I think at like twenty three years old, he had just sold a Lethal Weapon for several hundred thousand dollars, and my teacher was. I, th- I think he was an aspiring screenwriter, so he had us write uh, little short screenplays and stuff. I wrote a uh, a sequel to Predator for my project. Uh, I think it was called Predator Deep Space Death. And uh, that was my first foray into filmmaking, I guess. That's where it all started. Yeah. And that film yeah. never got made. <laughs> well, it was only like maybe 15 minutes long. You know? right, it, was like, right. it was a short script. I never really fleshed it out. Too. I see. Wow, so all the way back to junior high, middle school, you were writing film scripts, huh? Yeah, and then not much later, I started, I you know, got an agent. I actually wrote feature scripts that I was trying to sell when I was about 16, yeah. Yeah, wow. And then you finally uh, got a team together and got financed and, and did a horror film of your own. What, what, was that, what was that experience like, and what was the movie, and uh, where people can find that? Uh, the movie came out in 2016. It's called Silent Retreat. Um, it recently came out in Spanish uh, in Latin American countries, and it's called uh, Retiro Silencioso, <laughs> or one one place is calling it La Casa for some reason. I don't know. Maybe they just thought the artwork was easier to follow. Uh, they seem to really like it, Latin American countries. Um, how did that begin? How, or how did that start? Yeah, how'd that happen? Um, how, how'd you make that a reality? Uh, I was, I had, I had agents or I had an agent and a couple of them and they, I, I had written a script that was similar to scream that they really liked and they thought they could sell. And it never really, it was a sli- like a teen slasher that never, it got optioned, got kicked around all over the place, but never actually got made. Um, but they, but they really encouraged me to say like, stick with horror. Uh, we can sell you as a horror writer. So stick with horror. So I basically got pushed into horror. So they, uh, then, uh, so the way that worked is that you, okay, you're, you're a student, you're learning your craft, you're writing mm-hmm. stuff. And then you, you start to get more serious about the writing and you approach the agencies and say, Hey, I need to be represented. I mean, how does that it's, work? It, do do they have that happening every it, it, day? It started, it started as this process of just like, I didn't know how to make a movie. So it started with, well, I'll write something. And then I learned uh, how to edit. And then I learned how to uh, like photography, kind of like in that order. It went from writing to editing to more of the production, the video and stuff like that. Yeah. So it was a very long process to, uh, to, to finally get there. And then also, because I would imagine, I mean, each of those crafts, I mean, you know, the sound and the the cinematography and the lighting and the, you know, there's so many aspects to 
what's going on on the screen that most people don't really even comprehend everything that's happening. But you, so you impressed, basically you approached the agencies and you impressed them with something you had written. Is that how it kind of happened that they were willing to work with you? They basically said that, you know, um, if you're trying to sell a writer as an agent, it's easier to sell them for a particular thing, you know, like Stephen King writes horror, you know, he can write other stuff, but that's probably because he's just so incredibly successful with horror. If, if he, if he had a couple horror novels that didn't sell and he tried to do something else, he probably wouldn't get very far with it. You know, it's more, if more, it's like you take that success and you build it, build it on. But even with, you know, things like the Shawshank Redemption, he's still known as a horror writer. You know, that's, yeah. he's never going to outlive that. Right. So um, that's basically what they're telling me. It's like, well, you do this well, so stick with it, kid, and uh, maybe you'll you'll get there. But and are, the, are they know. are they pretty? Uh, you know, do agencies take anyone who approaches them, or do they have to like something about you? Or? Uh, yeah, it's it's really it's really difficult. I I um. It was, it was a really weird coincidence because I wrote this script and I submitted it to this company that does uh, coverage, which means they, uh, they'll review your script and write you, you know, a, like a simulated coverage report, which like the agencies, they have people that work for them and they, they, they don't all read all the scripts themselves. They have people that read the scripts, they write a little report and they send it to the agent and the agent reads it and they go, okay, I'll, I'll, that looks good. I'll read that script. So they wrote the coverage and the head of the company, ironically, was the same name as the serial killer in my movie. <laughs> so he loved it. And he said, I have a friend who's an agent and he passed it on to the agent. And that's basically what happened. I see. Yeah. So it's that little twist of luck along with some uh, good writing skills. Yeah, I think there's always a, a weird element of luck to show business yeah well that's good so does that give you now your experience you eventually released a, the movie and that's out mm -hmm. there um has your experience changed the way that you view horror movies from when you were you know just a kid or someone who didn't really have experience now when you watch a horror movie you know i i do a little bit of music production and some other things and and i'm a techie guy so when i go to watch a show you know, I'm looking at the lighting, I'm looking at the sound, I'm listening to the sound quality, I'm noticing all kinds of things about the show that, you know, the grandma next to me doesn't even know or care about, you know? So is that how it is for you with, with horror films? Well, you know, I'm really into, you know, late 70s, 80s, early 90s horror films. Um, and that's pretty much most of the stuff I watch, like even today, I'll go to screenings of films that I haven't seen before. Like I'm thinking of going to see uh, a screening of, what is it? American Werewolf in London. Uh -huh. I mean, I've, I, you know, I've seen parts of it, but I don't think I've ever sat down and watched the whole film. If I did, might've been in a film class, but I've never actually seen it at the theater. So I go to, I go to screenings of stuff like that. I don't watch a whole bunch of the newer films. Um, Partly because there's so many that I haven't seen yet that I think that are probably worthwhile. Um, 
ironically, Doctor Sleep is one of the films that I did. I did go to see in the theater. It was pre-pandemic, uh-huh. and uh, really enjoyed it. And how uh, for the listeners who don't know the relevance of that to The Shining, connect the dots. Doctor Sleep is the title of Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. It takes place forty years later, and, and the film was made like forty years later. And did um, Stephen King, so he wrote that well after the movie was produced, the movie version of his story. Yeah, it was way, way after, 30-some years after something, and he wrote a sequel called Doctor Sleep. It was about Danny, who's an adult now, and uh, his struggles with uh, with alcoholism and with The Shining. Ah, I see. That's basically what it is, yes. And then there's a new villain, a fantastic villain, I think. I really like the story. The movie I have some issues with. I, I really enjoy the movie, but I do have some issues with it. Um, but Stephen King's story for the sequel is just fantastic. It's um, it's so different. I mean, it's so you're you're getting something completely new. It's like a it's a character you know. You understand the phenomenon of The Shining, but it it takes you in a place where it's like, God, I never thought that would ever happen. Or you know, it's so not predictable, and you never want to guess where it's going. It's fantastic. Wow, that sounds good. I'd really like to see that. Yeah. So, so being that we're, you know, uh, The Shining is sort of the topic of this show, uh, I think it'd be best to sort of just do a quick rundown. Uh, the story takes place in a, uh, basically we see a character uh, who has a, a small family, a son and a wife. And they live in a small mm-hmm. place and there's some tension between them. And uh, he goes to get a new job at a lodge uh, somewhere up in the mountain range where it's uh, so treacherous that this lodge closes during the winter. And it's really only a, a spring summer type uh, uh, lodge that where people come and enjoy the place. So um, mm-hmm. this, this, um, main character who we see played by Jack Nicholson goes in for a job interview. It goes well, he accepts a job and then the place sort of starts to close down. He brings his family up. They're going to live there over the winter. And there's a little hint as to that. There's been some pretty hideous, you know, crime or events happen that have happened at this hotel just dropped at the end of his interview, you know, right after you get the job, congratulations, by the way, kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then we see him sort of descend into just insanity. And it happens in the movie. I think it happens pretty slow. I know we're going to talk about Stephen King's take on the story that he, uh, you know, wrote inspired by sort of thing. But, um, you know, the whole thing goes down and you start to wonder, is this real? Is this in this guy's head? You know, is there really supernatural phenomenon happening here? Are these ghosts? Is this this guy just tripping out, you know, is it in his own head? Is this mental health? What is this, you know? And uh, I think it, I think it's Stephen King's vision. It was definitely ghosts. But in Stanley Kubrick's version, um, it's, it's left a little bit more open. But it's ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, in the way the movie ends uh, for the, for those of you, there's a photo and in that photo, we see something and it pretty much, you know, uh, solidifies that this is supernatural phenomenon going on at this place. And, uh, 
the film itself, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I don't know what the budget, I think, on the movie, I'm going to pull it up. I think it was like $19 million. Let me take a look and just double Yeah, but that was, that was 40 years ago. So. Yeah, $19 million 40 years ago. That's a lot more than it seems. And that did, now that movie did $47 million. And I don't mm-hmm. know what time frame that is, but clearly it's continued to make money over the years on rentals and, you know, being licensed off in every different, you know, network for Halloween time and stuff like that. So it's probably yeah. way, the total's way, way up there, but you're right. A $19 million movie in 1979, 77, when I think they said they took five years to produce it, a year of actual on the set. And then there was editing and things um yeah that which is insane nobody does that i mean yeah. only stanley kubrick shoots for a year that's freaking insane yeah and he said when and people interviewed him he said he he didn't want time time limitations on the project he wanted it to be just like his very first movie he made in college and that was sort of his theory on that was like i don't want to feel like i have time well, limitations yeah. on this thing well his his philosophy is that they spend so much time and and every aspect of it, from the from the writing to um, to the post, and and and, and production was always rushed. It's rushed because it's the most expensive portion of filmmaking. Okay. So so production is always just bang bang bang. You know, you try to get it as quickly as possible, and he didn't believe in that. He wanted to use a small crew and take as much time as as he needed to get it right. Yeah. Which is. I mean, there's hardly anybody, if anybody, who does that anymore. Yeah. And the the other cool, you know, one thing that I didn't know, I've seen The Shining probably five times, and it wasn't until I started to dig a little deeper and, you know, just question, like, man, how was this thing made? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we see, we see an exterior lodge, and that's the Overlook Lodge, is that right? In the movie. The Overlook Lodge. In the Lodge. movie, it's called The Overlook. Yeah. So the Overlook Lodge, we see that. And then you come to find out as you dig deeper into this, the behind the scenes, that none of the film was done inside that location. And that uh, most of it, if not all, was pretty much done on a soundstage. And, in England, yeah. Yeah, soundstage in England. And if you look at this movie and you look at the grand size of this hotel, it's mind-blowing. I mean, it blows me away when you see the kitchen scene and the hallways and the big giant atrium in the front, you know, where the lobby is, and it just blows me away, the details, because I look at that and I think, wow, they must have just had someone come in and design a commercial kitchen and build it out like it really would be. I mean, everything from the exhaust hoods to the fire you know, suppression systems are there. I mean, if you look at the details, yeah. it's all it there. Is, I mean, it's probably one of the best sets ever constructed because when you see it, you don't even think it's a set. It never even crosses your mind that it's a set. You think you're in a big hotel. Yeah, absolutely. So the way that they matched the stuff in England and the stuff in Oregon was flawless. Yeah. So the so the exterior of the hotel, that is a real hotel in Oregon and you were just there and that sort of inspired this show. So maybe tell mm-hmm. people a little bit about how you ended up there and what's up there to see. Yeah. I recently took a trip up to Mount hood where the Timberline lodge, uh, sits right under Mount hood. I am a 
hiker, uh, ultra hiker for uh, Solomon and some other sponsors. And uh, the Timberline Lodge is uh, effectively the, the, the trailhead for the PCT connects to the Timberline Lodge or the Timberline Trail, which is considered the, the most difficult day hike in America. So that's why I was up there to try to complete that. I see. Yeah. And did you do Which it? I did. Yes. Okay. It took it took about twenty one hours. Wow. Uh, it was pretty brutal. Uh, for almost approximately forty three miles. Yeah, I, I hiked. How long did that take? Uh, just over twenty one hours. Twenty one hours. And did you? Um, the air up there, it's thinner, right? So it's it's you have to train for that. Mm. No. It's not as high as you think. It's about as high as Big Bear. It's, it's oh, okay. I mean, I've, I've I've been on top of Mount Whitney, like fourteen, fourteen five. Yeah. This is this is. I mean, yeah, I didn't really notice the elevation. I see. I mean, some might. I I don't. I mean, I I've never tried to do like a twenty five k or something, but um, so far I don't I don't really have an ele- uh, problem with elevation. So I, see. I didn't notice it. Maybe some would. So what was your first thought when you saw the hotel, you know, uh, after, you know, you've seen the movie and then there you are, you're on the outside looking up at it. Did it bring back any feelings from that movie or just thoughts of the craziness of that movie? Well, you know, the cool thing was as soon as I, I got there and I parked and I walked up cause I knew where I had to go. I had to walk behind the hotel. It started snowing, which was you know, like the movie, it was just awesome. That wasn't like a blizzard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like in the film, but the, the moment you, you pull up to the, the overlook and it starts snowing is a pretty uh, spectacular moment in your life. Yeah, absolutely, man. Couldn't ask for anything yeah. better. But at the same time, I was, yeah, I was pretty nervous because if it, if it continued to snow, it, uh, that would make the hike incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Now, when you get there, I don't, you know, it's 2021 and, you know, that was 1980. Is it all modernized? I mean, is it easy to recognize? Do you get that feeling when you look at it or is it, uh, or is it, exactly, so- it looks exactly the same? Okay. okay. I mean, maybe they probably repainted it, you know, and maybe it's a little bit lighter color, I mean, but it looks exactly the same. They, I, I it's a, it's like a historical landmark or whatever they call it. So it's been well taken care of. I see. Um, yeah. And the only thing is that um, the, the way it's situated, the driveway is like very narrow um, so much so that when you get there, you can't really see all the hotel. You have you like um, when they did the exteriors for the film, they went way the hell out and then shot back. So you could see the entire hotel. Uh huh. Um, when you're there, you can't really see all of it. It's very hard to take like a picture of it and get the whole thing in frame just because it has kind of a little narrow driveway in front. So, I, I mean, I don't know exactly where it'd have to go to get a good wide angle photo of the entire hotel, but it's pretty far. You have yeah. to go pretty far to get it all in frame. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, is there any, what do they do? I mean, obviously this place is, you know, very well known and they probably get lots of people that come there, mm-hmm. you know, just because, you know, they recognize it from the shining. Um, well, it's, is this it's the hope of it's, it's kind of a tourist trap, kind of a high end tourist trap. 
Okay. Um, you know, expensive restaurants, two bars, uh, gift shop, a little mini uh, museum type thing, a lounge, and rooms. Now, is uh, this the hotel that in the movie there was a room? I think it was two seventeen. They said that they the mm-hmm. hotel asked them to use two thirty seven, which didn't exist. Is that that hotel, or is it the hotel inspired by? Uh, inspired. No, that's, a, that's a Stanley Hotel in um, Colorado. Okay, so um, maybe explain to those listeners out there. Um, we've got the actual the Overlook Hotel, which is in the movie. We have the Timberline Lodge, which is in Oregon, which mm-hmm. is the exterior. And then what is the Stanley Hotel? Stanley Hotel is a, it's a relatively luxurious hotel in, in Colorado that Stephen King stayed in. He experienced something paranormal uh, that inspired him to, I think it was a nightmare. I don't know if he actually saw a ghost or, or what. Maybe it was both. Maybe he saw a ghost and had a nightmare. But uh, that in his stay at the Stanley inspired him to write The Shining. Uh-huh. Now, I don't recall if he actually stayed in room t- 217. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Um, but in the book, there was the most haunted part of the hotel was, was called room 17, which they later changed to room 237 in The Shining. Uh, I think the people at the Stanley were, were nervous that nobody would want the room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is ridiculous because that's, that's the most popular room at the Stanley. That's what they say. They have a very long wait to stay, to, to book that room. Which I don't know is true because one time I was watching the show, uh, some paranormal show, and they said, like, this is super long wait to stay at 217. And then I contacted the hotel, and they're like, yeah, you can have it uh, next week or something. <laughs> like first, <laughs> like first available. So I was like, all right. Yeah, I see. So I, that that might be a marketing ploy. Yeah, know. yeah, I can see that. So, um, so Stephen King stays there. He gets inspired. He writes a novel, and that novel mm-hmm. is that. Do you know if that was a very successful novel, or is it one of these books that sort of hit the radar of Hollywood, or you know, somebody? I think it, who, I think it was pretty big. It must have been pretty big. Okay. So the book itself now in uh, Stephen King wrote a screenplay for the film adaptation of his of his book, and the rumor from the sort of uh, you know assistant of Stanley Kubrick said that he never even read it and that he didn't really care for Stephen King's writing style and that he was very um, impressed by this, uh, another writer, uh, her first name was Linda. But anyway, between her and him, they came up with the script for the movie, The Shining. And I think it was Diane, Diane Johnson. Diane Johnson. He brought him to write it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I thought he had read it. He just um, wasn't crazy about it. But... Um, I believe Warner Brothers also kind of pressured him into doing the film because his previous movie uh, wasn't as financially successful as they wanted. So they brought a couple of different projects to him um, that were potentially, like this one being a bestseller, that had a high potential of being more commercially successful. So right. they kind of nudged, nudged him into this one. 
I think. I see. Had he had done Clockwork Orange by then? Was that his first movie? Oh, I think Clockwork Orange was like his seventh movie or something. Oh, okay. Okay. He, he had done um, some earlier films that are not that well known. I see. Um, so so he goes and he he starts to work his, you know, produce this movie and he cast it and he cast Jack Nicholson and uh several other people. Um I don't think um was it the wife the lady who plays the wife did she ever Joan do Duvall. Yeah. Was she involved is she's a daughter of Richard Duvall by any chance? I was I think that's something I was curious about. I think she's related to Robert Duvall in some way. Okay. So, I, I don't remember exactly. So she said, think, you know, one thing she said was that uh, she was pushed the hardest she's ever been pushed on a film. And there's a particular scene that, uh, that Stanley made her do 176 times or something. It's like the, the world record for, you know, taking, taking, getting in, getting in the can, the perfect version of a scene. And mm -hmm. so I guess oh, it was 127 times. That's it. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. So anyway, he made her repeat that scene 127 times. And it was, um, she just basically said like, you know, she was humiliated in front of her colleagues and stuff like that, that he really was hard on her. But um, I think she did a good job in the film. I think she, her character really comes across well. You know, she's kind of a little bit timid and mousy and she's, you know, trying to get mm -hmm. by with this guy that's kind of, got a hot-headed temper and you know she's got her little kid there and i think yeah, she, she i mean she said in interviews that um that he pushed her to a point where you know later on she looked back and realized that it did really enhance the performance because of her being exhaustion of her exhaustion and stress uh to the level of where her character would be at you know yeah and it's it is a very powerful performance. She is generally very terrified. And um, I think it's an underrated performance, really. I know that Stephen King really did not like her performance or her character. And uh, I really feel she's kind of underrated just because, you know, she's not the strongest woman in the beginning of the film, but that's something she has to overcome, which makes her more interesting, in my opinion. Yeah. You know. Well, the other thing too is that I know one of the criticisms of Stephen King uh, in the selection of Jack Nicholson was that he mm -hmm. had just done his uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he played a crazy guy. And so mm -hmm. his opinion was that, you know, Jack Nicholson is in pop culture at the time, you know, as soon as he does a little crazy grin, like everybody goes back to that character that they know him from in that other movie. But these days, if you take that film and show it to a teenager or someone who wasn't around or doesn't know any of Jack Nicholson's work, you know, I don't think that holds water. I think he, I think he's, I don't think he's crazy right off the bat. I definitely, I haven't seen all of Jack Nicholson's early work and I feel like, you know, I think The Shining is probably one of the only movies I've seen of his very, you know, heyday work, so to speak, when he was very, you know starting out or just you know becoming popular successful and i don't think it moves too fast i think there's definitely i mean in the amount of time and the amount of minutes that we have to get from the guy just got the job he's there with his family and then you know 
everything mm-hmm. hits the fan, I think it's a nice progression. I, I don't agree, actually. I, I think it, you know, I think at that time when it came out, sure, you know, valid point, but all these years later, not necessarily so. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely think there's a progression. I mean, he's actually pretty nice in the beginning of the film, you know. Yeah. Um, the character, they do allude to some issues that he has with alcoholism. And like one time he, uh, you know, he hurt his kid, but they made it sound like it was inadvertent. Like he wasn't really trying to hurt the kid. Yeah, um, I think that's a seems- big, that's a big turn in the film when you said as far as hurting the kid. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a big turn in the film, you know, when he's starting to go stir crazy and his wife is up in the unit that they get to live in. And I mm-hmm. think he gets, you know, violent towards the kid or, you know, just has a look in his eye that he's like willing to hurt his own kid, you know, at the top of the stairs. It's, a, it's an interesting movie because there's only like four major roles in the entire film. I mean, there's some minor characters, but I thought every, all four of those characters were fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I, I don't I can't even think of anything that I would fault their performances. And I mean, they're, they're practically flawless. The, the four characters, uh, Jack Nicholson, Shelley DeVault, Danny Lloyd as the kid and Scamman Crothers as Dick Halloran. Yeah. Who, uh, was such an important character because he introduced the concept of the shining. Right. Know? Right. So you kind of, you kind of underestimate how important that character is. And also because he's that character is in Dr. Sleep as well. Okay. And when he talks about The Shining, he tells the little kid, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, uh, uh, he recognizes that Danny has some sort of ability and Mm -hmm. he sort of pulls him aside and tells him, you know, hey kid, you know, we call it The Shining. Like, you know, he's sharing with him that he has that same ability and that his parents aren't going to understand him. You know, so it's a, we've got this interesting little side thing, you know, here's this kid with some sort of supernatural powers shared by another adult in the film. And then you've got, you know, the degradation of the mental capacity of his father, you know, just really losing it. And, uh, they say, you know, the thing about the shining, lots of people have said is that, you know, even if you've seen it five times, you can watch it again and pick up little things, new stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's obviously stood the test of time. I mean, it's like, even to this day, because, you know, we talked about earlier in the show how if you were to watch Nightmare on Elm Street today, it doesn't mm-hmm. have that same, it doesn't have that same creep factor because, like you said, the practical effects and things like that fall short by today's standards or they were leaned upon, you know, to get you that emotional response out of you at the time where they were good enough to do that. And that's the thing about this movie is this horror film doesn't need any of that. It's all the characters and their performance. And I think it's still a creepy ass movie. I'm just going to throw it out there with that kind of tenacity. It's a creepy ass movie. When you get done watching that thing, you're like, damn, you know, Mm -hmm. That could be me, you know, that could be me and my family up there doing that. You know, the hotel turned this guy crazy and he's sitting there swinging an axe at his wife. It's equal parts um, paranormal horror and psychological horror. You know, it's really kind of 50-50. Yeah. And I know some people would probably be like, oh, it's more psychological or it's more more paranormal. I know 
And what that's maybe the great thing about it is I think Kubrick wanted to make a psychological horror film and, and Stephen King wanted to make a paranormal horror film. Yeah. And there's kind of like this war between these two great creative geniuses and it resulted in one of the best horror films ever made. You know? Yeah, and I mean, if you look at Stephen King's other films that have come out, you know, Children of the Corn and Christine and, you know, some of these other films, they're very different. I mean, they're not, they don't even fit in the same box as The Shining, in my opinion. They're just a whole different animal. So. Yeah. Uh, I want to I say something um, before I forget, because unless Stephen King was here, um, he's probably the only one that can confirm this for sure. But I've never heard anyone say this. I'm sure there's circles online and, and super fans who have picked up on this. But the scene in the kitchen where, uh, what's his name, Dick Halloran meets Danny, and he calls him Doc. That's his nickname. Like, yeah. he knew that because he, he's psychic, too. Right. But what, what, is, what does Doc mean? Um, and Doc is a reference to the sequel. Doctor Sleep is which what they call him in the future. Ah. Doc, uh, doc is short for Doctor Sleep, which he's actually not really a doctor, but that's just a nickname that he has um, that's given to him. And um, partly in the book, um, so this is more on the Stephen King than the Stanley Kubrick thing, was that The Shining, you can see things in different times as well. So his nickname is actually from what he becomes later as an adult. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And another thing too, is when he talks to the little voice in his head, Tony, right. um, from the min, from the mini in the mini series version that, um, there's, you know, the Stanley Kubrick version. And then there was a TV, a three part TV, uh, series that I think, King executive produced. He oversaw very closely. He wanted to do his own version of it. Uh huh. And um, Tony is actually Danny in the future, communicating back to him. Oh wow! Yeah. So Dan- so it's interesting. Tony really is him, but it's him in a different time. So Tony is the Danny in a different yeah. time. Yeah. Trying to like, talk to himself. Yeah, kind of like if you could go back and talk to yourself and give you advice as to what you're going to face. So you get out of the situation better, you know? And if you, if you, if you know, in the, in the first part of the movie, Danny blacks out and he has this vision of the, the blood uh, coming down the elevator shaft. And that, that vision is something that's seen later. So Tony is giving him a vision of the future. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's cool. You know, I haven't I haven't taken the time to to go look at that uh, that mini series. Definitely mm-hmm. sounds like something really cool to see. Uh, here's and a they little. Actually sh- they shot that at the Stanley. Oh, did they? Okay. Yeah, you yeah. had told me that. So so they went back in that later sequel and actually shot it in the Stanley. Yeah, yeah. One of the weirdest thing is um, instead of chasing. Danny with an axe, uh, Jack chases him with, I think it's a croquet mallet. Okay. Which is what's in the original book, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Here's a little fact. I was just looking here and I see that, uh, 
as you said earlier in the show that the the overlook hotel was modeled after the awani hotel and they created that in uh was it elstree studios elstree studios so elstree studios giant soundstage yeah that is in borm wood which is just outside of london i've actually been there uh i worked with some guys that are from there and live out there and they (laughs) uh a guy named john um he was involved as a set as a hand in the production of star wars and there are many scenes that are in star wars that were made on that same same soundstage area or there in borum wood which is sort of like their hollywood so anyway yeah, i think they did the uh, raiders lost ark out there too yeah for parts of it yeah so that's pretty cool but uh yeah so what is your favorite scene man i mean the thing you know it gets crazy i mean i i you know there's so many great scenes in that movie you know everything from you know well first of all i have go- to say my, my favorite scene is probably the it's the scene in room 237 because it's it's hard for me even to watch it it's so fucked up when the woman comes out and she looks all beautiful and then yeah and then we see her because again and she's rotting flesh i think that's kind of deep deeply psychological because it's just it symbolizes age like it's because that's i mean yeah it's it's like oh it's a corpse and that's scary but it also represents like the the passing of time from where this this woman is young and beautiful to where she's kind of old and hideous and that right it's just like this concept that that happens to everybody and it's inescapable it's kind of one of the most primal fear elements well the other thing too is it's sort of uh it's sort of a gotcha right because you know i see a a nude woman coming out of a bath and you know it's arousing to you know see a female and she's pretty and uh and then all of a sudden, you know, he's falling into that, you know, and then all of a sudden he opens his eyes. And as you said, you know, and that might play into this whole time shift thing with the shining, right? Like mm-hmm. there's these moments where we're in one era. And then, as you said, time has passed and she's a corpse, you know? Well, cause I think it was that woman killed herself in the bathtub and, um, you know, so she would be. I don't, I don't, I mean, they, I think they made her old and scary for, for creative reasons, Yeah. but she was decomposing and she would have been decomposing in the bathtub. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I agree. I, I really like that scene, you know, and then, and then of course there's the famous scene where, and this was apparently ad lib by, uh, Jack Nicholson, you know, where he's mm-hmm. trying to break into the apartment within the hotel that his family lives in get after you know going after his wife with an axe and chopping on the bathroom door and it's that famous scene where he sticks his face through and says here's johnny a reference to the johnny carson show popular at the time of course a teenager today wouldn't get that or know who here's johnny is but it's it's so perfect because it's kind of just like the ramblings of a crazy person you know it's like some random thing he saw on tv is what he's saying right it's because he's losing his mind and just yeah, things absolutely. are shooting, shooting out randomly in his head, you know? Yeah. And I think that's why they kept it. He probably, I mean, they probably shot him saying a bunch of stuff going through that doorway. Yeah. And that one thing that he just pulled out of his ass was what they the kept. Best. And what's interesting like, is, I mean, iconic that makes like, there's apparently some top 100 list of movie scenes mm-hmm. uh, from all movies of all time. And that's in there that made the list. So, 
Yeah, that here's Johnny. I mean, that's <laughs> so doing some research on this show. You know, I put in uh, Jack Nicholson and, you know, his face sticking through that door <laughs> comes up. So, I mean, that's how iconic it is. It's a it's an animated GIF today that's popular, popularly yeah. used. Well, I think that's part of the reason Kubrick does so many takes is that you get weird random moments like that. You know, that might I, I don't think it was take one. I mean, it could have been take 26. That he just was like, oh, and I'll say something crazy coming through the door, and it worked. Yeah, you know? yeah um, for sure. So he liked this idea of experimentation in production. You know, you get to, to take the time to try different things, and that's an example of it. You know, a lot of other filmmakers wouldn't have ever shot that. It would have just been, you know, whatever the script says for him to say when he knocks down the door. Right, and that's. You know, you get a good shot of it and you move on to the next one. So, Well, like you said, also production's most expensive, so they're not really entertaining oh, yeah. every single minute going by. That film camera's 30 frames a second, you know? They went through a ton of doors, I heard. What, what is the door? Is that the part in the camera? Oh, yeah, he had the axe through the door. Oh, so, that part, yeah. So when they retake it, they have to put a new door in the frame. Right, of course. So I forget the number. It was like 18 doors or something that they wow. used. Yeah, it really is a, a amazing production when you when you know what's going on, you know, behind the scenes on that. Mm. I, I think uh, you know the the snowstorm outside. Of course, the great scenes in the maze, you know, where they're running around in this this big giant maze in front of this place, and he's after his kid. You know, um, such a great movie. Yeah, the the maze is also production department that's that doesn't exist at the timberline oh it's not there yeah it never was i see i think they did they eventually made one at the stanley hotel just for fun i but see that wasn't until till like years later so i think that all came from um stephen king's imagination uh the maze yeah actually i don't know if it was a maze i think maybe Uber came up with that. I remember in the book, The Shining, there were these hedge creatures. Um, you know how, I think Edward Scissorhands, remember he would he would cut hedges and turn them into an animal? Yeah. Um, they had those at the hotel, and then in the book version, they came to life. So I think in, I think in the book version, there was no maze. It was these hedge creatures that come to life. Ah, uh, I see. Huh, wow. Yeah, and then uh, there's also the, you know, when he's really losing his mind and his wife is like, what are you typing up? Because he's like, leave me alone. And he's typing and typing and typing. And then it's the same phrase over and over mm -hmm. and over again. I think that's when the audience really, that's the turning point when you're like, oh, damn, this guy's lost his mind, you know? Yeah. Well, that's another interesting thing, too, is that um, they were snowed in in the same place for a long period of time. And the there's a con condition called cabin fever, which happens a lot. Like there's a lot of cases like that in Alaska of people in cabins that are snowed in that kind of just go on random killing sprees because they lose their mind. Wow. Yeah. So, so from, from isolation. Yeah. Now, um, when you were up there to do your hike, you mm -hmm. stayed in a different hotel that was near the Timberland Lodge Timberline. Yeah, the, the the Timberline is on government property. So I stayed at a condo 
um, on on the property on the government property, but it was you know it was a few miles away. Yeah, and um, now that place it turns out has some stories of its own, huh? The Timberline? No, no, the place you stayed at. Oh, okay. This is confusing because um, when I was at the Timberline, I stayed at a condo. Uh, best of my knowledge, there isn't any paranormal history at the condo. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. After I stayed a couple days at the condo, I went to a friend's place who owns the Delaney Murder House that's now turned into an Airbnb. And oh. I stayed there also, which is like two hours away. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And the Laney Murder House, what, what's going on there? Um, well, I'm not really an expert on the, on the case, but, um, it's one of the oldest houses in England. I'm sorry, in England, in <laughs> Oregon. Um, let me find what year it was built. I know it's older than the Whaley house that we were at, which is one of the oldest places in California. Yeah. I think that the William um, Heath Davis is like 1850 or 51. And the Whaley House is somewhere in like 1860s, I believe. This was built in 1845. Okay. And it was the scene of a famous murder where, um, I think his name is John Delaney. Daniel Delaney. So he was murdered. Daniel, Daniel Delaney. He was, he was murdered in the property. And that was in recent times or a long time ago? A long time ago, yeah. And so you stayed there, and when you stayed there, you met a woman who knows a lot about this, you were saying, about the hauntings or things that had happened there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a long, kind of dark history of the place, and people have... It's, it was, it's been investigated by multiple investigation teams, and um, Zach Baggins wanted to investigated but they couldn't work out a deal i see he he, uh, wanted to well ghost adventures wanted to move them out of the house for five days and they're like well that's not gonna work oh i see yeah they said if you listen let us stay here while you're filming you can do it but they're like no yeah everybody's got to be out and you didn't want to do that so So they live there the people that uh you're talking they live there um they kind of live downstairs and then upstairs is um for the Airbnb. I think it's like two or three bedrooms. It, it's deceivingly large. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of rooms. Um, it's an interesting place because there's like the original house and then there was additions that were added on to it. Um, but yeah, it's supposedly I stayed in a haunted house. Now, did you feel anything there? Anything happen? Any noises? Uh, when I... When I first went down to the bottom floor i mean it was a little spooky uh and i do think a light went on at some point i i, I didn't even think about it because i figured like oh you know uh vicky or her husband probably turned it on but i didn't hear them hmm. you know so this light just and nobody else was there yeah just uh them and two dogs and, i see yeah a light in a room from across me turned on for no apparent reason i think so I eventually, I eventually got up in the middle of the night and turned it off. So I have a confession. Don't tell Eric. Okay. So when he was staying at my house here, as I've said, it's a hundred year old house. Mm-hmm. I have uh, smart bulbs throughout the whole house. 
And while he was here alone and I was in LA, I turned a couple yeah. of lights off in my bedroom. I saw my bedroom lights were on. So I turned them off and I turned the kitchen lights off. And then uh, they turned back on. So Eric came out and turned some more lights back on. <laughs> but uh, these days when a light turns on and off by itself, you can never fully know if it's paranormal or if it's just high tech, oh. right? <laughs> oh yeah. Like I said, I, it was, it was, I think it was like the laundry room or something. It was like, there yeah. was no reason, reason for it to, to turn on. Yeah. So the shining man, uh, do you watch it every year? Is it a regular thing for you or just when you see it, come on? Um, I don't know. I've watched a lot. Last time I saw it was at theater. It was like a 4k restoration and it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I definitely feel that it changed my opinion of the film, um, seeing it, um, on the big screen. Do you think uh, there's, yeah. Versus, um, well you, now you're, you're a special kind of guy because you like watching scary movies on the VHS tape so that you can get the noise that we've lost in our high tech world of on demand video. Yeah, it's partly that. It's partly that I I like the art. I like that VHS is kind of alive and has a lifespan, and you get to see some of the de deterioration of the image and the character of it. Um, uh, it's 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 a throwback. Obviously, you know, the 4K restoration was much better, and probably Stanley would like that much better. Um, I don't have The Shining on VHS, but I do have some old scary movies on VHS. Yeah, I just find it—it's more fun. Yeah, uh, and it's—it's it's a way to collect the art. Um, I just bought uh, Child's Play two because I like the cover art. I mean, it's not a pristine condition. You know, like a pristine one would be like two hundred fifty, three hundred bucks probably. Yeah. Um, but I kind of like the ones that are used in a little dog-eared. Yeah. And have per personality to it. Character. I got Monkey Shines recently, another Stephen King one. Uh, partly just because I'd never seen it and I like, I thought the um, cover was one of the best 80s horror movie artworks with a little monkey guy on it. Yeah, that's and, cool. Uh, what was the other one? I got to at least go to college just because I thought that was. I've got that from my Halloween party last year because I thought that was just the quintessential dumb <laughs> VHS movie, you know? Yeah. VHS horror movie fun because a lot of times when we're watching movies at the party, um, it's just kind of on in the background. So I, I would never really watch a movie like The Shining at a Halloween party because that movie deserves to be better than just something that's on in the background. Yeah. So I tend to, tend to, I think the one, like the last three years has been this year is going to be a child's play two the year before that was, um, uh, ghoulies go to college. And then before that it was, um, killer clowns from outer space. So yeah. I always try to find some. Yeah. Kind of wow. So you crazy, haven't, you crazy, haven't, wacky movie. You haven't done army of darkness yet or evil dead, huh? No, just because the people in my party, they, there's not necessarily that into one into those, but I do think one of my friends, wants to see army of darkness so we might do that at some point oh man i remember the first time i saw army of darkness uh when i worked at sea world uh 
group of people would have parties and you know somebody had a movie night and set up a sheet in their backyard you know and a projector uh -huh. which back in 1992 was a big deal to have a projector you know and uh we watched army of darkness in the backyard and i just remember watching the movie thinking man what the hell is it? what am i watching here you know it's almost like a it was like a real horror film it started off and it was scary and then all of a sudden it just turned into a comedy you know <laughs> and we can yeah. get into that another time but what do you I think, think that's a little bit different era i think that was uh, early 90s or yes. mid 90s no it was early 90s for sure it was like early 1990 90, yeah. 91 92 yeah and uh originally army of darkness was supposed to be evil dead too Mm, okay. They, they decided they decided on making something more similar to Evil Dead One. I see. Yeah. Yeah. The best of my recollection, the Evil Dead One wasn't really comedy. It was like, and I might be yeah. remembering that wrong. I mean, I'm thinking back, you know, from now to then. But you know, it seems to me Evil Dead might have even come out in like '87, '88, '89. Yeah. Ironically, uh, I heard that uh, Sam Raimi had a. Uh, really hard time trying to get evil dead Two made and eventually um stephen king stepped in and oh. had a producer friend of his make the film oh that's cool partly just because he was such a fan of it yeah and it was the it was the producer that suggested that they make it more of a comedy to kind of um because the budget had gotten uh, the original budget i think for evil dead one was like three hundred thousand, give or take yeah, and then the, the new budget was almost four million, so it was a much bigger film, and they wanted to make it uh, ha reach more of a, a larger audience. So they suggested that they kind of make it a little sillier, a little funnier, um, and less kind of gross out. I see. That's. Cool. I'm sure it probably still had just as much gross out, but yeah, I think the produce the producer felt it would be more accessible to a wider audience if it wasn't so intense. Yeah, and I mean, if you've got a. Oh, <laughs> you go low budget, you know, you can squirt uh, corn syrup out of a syringe, you know, <laughs> for, mm -hmm. for the blood effects. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's cool bit of trivia. Uh, you know, another cool little piece of trivia as we're kind of straying away, but I'm going to have one final question for you about shining. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, I remember listening to the Howard Stern show years ago when uh, he had just produced his movie private parts. And mm -hmm. at that time, uh, Eli Roth had just hit a home run with his first movie, you know, that came out about the um, kids. Cabin out, Fever, yeah. Uh, what's that? Cabin Fever. No, was it Cabin Fever was his first one? What was the one uh, with the Eastern Block where the kids were being lured into the torture chambers? Oh, Hostel. Hostel. Okay, Hostel was his, second, his okay, second movie. Okay, so I think Hostel really, like, put him on the map I, over cabin fever. I don't know if I'm right on that, but anyway, when, yeah, well, hostel made quite a bit of money, but I think that was partly because it was marketed. People thought that Tarantino had made it because okay. Tarantino was, uh, an executive producer, which really, he was kind of more of a money, man. honorary money, producer. Man. right? Well, like isn't, he was, isn't an executive producer, like the money side of it, you put money into it and you're an executive producer. It's really confusing. It can be anything you want, really. But yeah, in, in general, the executive producer is set aside for um, big investors, the, the financer, or um, a key, like a key creative. 
somebody put the movie together. And I'm sure he did contribute to getting the film put together, but yeah. I just don't think he was very hands-on right. with that film. So um, Howard Stern said that, uh, he said uh, that there was this kid when he was making private parts who was a security guard to make sure nobody was coming and going from his trailer during production. Mm -hmm. And that kid was always like, had a notebook and was writing, writing, writing. And he said, he told Howard Stern, he said, hey, I'm writing my movie. I'm going to make this movie someday, this horror movie. And the security guard was Eli Roth. Hmm. Yeah, I, I heard he'd worked as like a production assistant or something on some films. Yeah, so but, supposedly you know. he was, you know, just at the bottom of the totem pole over there while Howard Stern was doing his movie. And, uh, you know, here's this guy talking about, <laughs> you know, about right. everybody's yeah. talking, everybody's writing a movie, right? Everybody's going to have a movie coming out in Hollywood. And then uh, here's this home run hostel, you know, and it's like, it turns out it was that guy. It was really cool. Eli Roth seems cool. I've seen some social media stuff like some stunts about four three four or five years ago where he did this i don't know if you remember this but he did like uh he got a bunch of social influencers before people were calling people social influencers and uh invited them to a party where there were some murders it was like a murder thing going down but it was really cool because this was all going down like on vine or twitter so little blips of what was going on during this evening, this party at Eli Roth's house in the Hollywood Hills, you know, they got people, everybody's doing, ah, we're going to Eli Roth's house tonight. And, you know, they're at the store buying something or getting dressed already. And then you see him kind of in the jacuzzi and then people come in and they're excited. They're at this, you know, famous producer's house and then murders start to happen. But all this is going down on multiple platforms and all throughout the whole night. It was really cool. It was really neat that he did that. It was sort of a, yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, I'd have to go back and look that up. But I remember that night, like following along real time, which was really cool. So, uh, okay, so we're going to wrap this up. We're over an hour here. But uh, one final question Is there any more modern horror movie that you think is worthy of and will 30 years later? be talked about like the shining Oof. um no yeah but you have to understand there's a lot of a lot of movies that i i haven't seen but it, it's hard for me to say like even the films that i i think that are pretty good or films will people be watching it 30 40 years from now Ugh, probably not yeah probably not um well, there is Probably a film. There is a film called Zombie Beaver. Did you see that one? Wait, is that the girl we met at the? Eric and I met this girl. I think she's in that. So, Zombie Beaver was like a classic B-rate, B-rated uh, horror movie. It's just really funny. Look, I'm actually, to I'm totally kidding. Ironic. I'm oh, totally kidding okay. that that movie will be considered like this. But I'm just, it's just, it's funny because it's so poorly rated. You know, everybody's like, oh my God, this, this movie's so cheesy. Uh, you know, the effects are dumb, you know, all these things. And it's no, like, I just thought that was really ironic because Eric and I just met the chickens on beavers, I think. Oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> but yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's like, yeah, man, it's supposed to be like that. It's a, it's like a play oh, yeah. on an eighties oh, yeah. um, crappy produced, you know, thrown together by some kids movie. 
you know and i loved it i thought it was really good i have a hard time i wonder as movies even really going to be around in 30 40 years uh-huh. um i think things will change so much that i mean yeah they'll still exist but will they be as prevalent in pop culture and things like that or will it just kind of be like a mush of five, uh 10 second like things like, <laughs> like racquetball like something that was popular for a time that people used to do and now there's other things that right people do like well you're talking about the games or interactive stuff or the like, attention you know. span you know i've got young, yeah. i got young kids and they don't sit their movies very well they they yeah, actually they like, actually will like in the young, theater they will in the theater but you know they're seems like young kids they don't they're not as into movies anymore yeah. you know well, it's kind of like magazines. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's an appreciation for picking up a book off the table when you got nothing to do and looking at the pictures and reading an mm-hmm. article. And it's like, you know, people just don't do that anymore. We don't well, I think it's teenagers content. that kind of really drove the success of, of horror films, at least like the lower budget ones in the 80s, yeah, 70s and 80s. And if teenagers aren't really into horror or into or- horror films, they might be into horror something else, maybe like, or attractions or podcasts or podcasts or or video games like my roommate has some virtual reality horror game that he plays yeah um yeah i mean i I haven't played it but that sounds pretty cool Um, yeah i'm hey i'm on i'm on board with that i i think you make a really great point that uh you know 30 years from now maybe long two-hour film stories are you know not going to be appreciated you know so much yeah, I although think even even the netflix audience are people more our age yeah more the con the content's made more towards people our age than it is you know you know one of the things though is that i think sometimes when we um make assumptions about young people uh mm-hmm. you like you said you know you enjoy watching a vhs cassette movie for in all of its glory that it is and isn't and well, I, have uh, this, I have this weird thing where it's like i watch vhs's on a projector yeah like on a modern projector so it's kind of like this weird mix of, <laughs> of old technology you want it technology. old and funky but not too old and funky <laughs> yeah well it's, it's like film 35 millimeter film if you go to a theater and watch a 35 millimeter print yeah it is similar i mean it's not as bad as vhs in the way it decays but it it starts to decay too so it has its own kind of life cycle yeah yeah as, as well and that kind of personality in the print is embedded in the film and i think at the the new beverly which is tarantino's theater he will only show 35 millimeter prints yeah no just, digital prints at all so i just heard a great interview with him <coughs> him on the joe rogan show so that was oh a good yeah one. That, but, I, I i heard that it's good you know so um but back to what I was saying about young people. So I have a daughter who's a t- who just turned 18. She's an adult now. But mm-hmm. um, she seems to go out of her way to find cool old stuff. Like uh, she loves the song Carrie, Carrie Wayward Son. You know what I mean? Carry on Wayward Son. And she talks about how it's like storytelling. She's like, this song is so long, you know, it's like, it's this. Mm -hmm. And then it's like another scene. It's, it's almost like a, you know, a film in your head. It's like three different acts, you know, it's so long. It's 10 minutes long, 12 minutes long, whatever it is. 
and um she appreciates that you know and it's like so i think for every kid that's like you know attention span has been shot down and just wants little clippets and snippets of information you know i think people get tired of that and they step back and they go wait a minute you know what what has been done before you know wow that's really cool you know so maybe with any you know luck or hope that you know films will be around 30 years from well now. i i don't think they're going extinct but i think that movies for the last hundred years have been such an integral part of american pop culture um i just think that kind of thing is dying out like movie stars are going to have less relevance movies are going to be seen less the box office numbers are going to go down there's going to be more of the made right more of it's going to go to streaming and then it's just going to become like streaming content which movies are eventually anything that goes directly to streaming is now just like a tv show yeah the the magic of a big cinema is slowly kind of dying out and obviously they're probably still gonna get made and still get watched and appreciated yeah but it's more of just movies as part of american culture i think is kind of dying out i see yeah uh well you, you know things change right but uh as long as we're I mean, around, we'll, we'll, still. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the shining is, uh, living on every single year and, uh, as it should, you know, it's a great movie. And I think that it really, I mean, it really holds up. It's probably holds up better than anything I've seen in a long time. Yeah. I mean, uh, as even as like going to the theater and seeing it 39 years after it came out. Right. Right. I mean, does Titanic still move you like it did in 96? No, no, it does for me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think it's still a powerful story, but that's a big grand story as well. That had a huge budget. What was it like $200 million or something? I think, you know, so there are some of those big ones out there, but in the horror genre, you know, I think it's a rare gem that, you know, horror, horror movies are so, I think it's just like anything, right? Like when you strip down something, I just went to zombie Joe's theater you know, mm. I mean, they don't have, they have real basic, like anybody could buy the Bluetooth speakers they're using, you know, and anyone can get clip on lights from Home Depot and, you know, put some, you know, colored, you know, film over it. And it's an incredible show. It's like, it just stands up on its own for the acting and the, and the writing and the production, you know, it's not so grandly produced, but. It's, I just saw the Zombie Joe's guy at the Delusion when I went. Oh, yeah. Zombie Joe himself? I think it was. Yeah. I yeah, I just saw him two nights ago. I just saw Joe. Yeah. But uh, what I'm, where I'm going with that is that, you know, films in the same way, you know, they can. there's so much more when you stop and you watch them, and I think that's what just keeps them going over time, is that, you know, the kind of horror movies like uh, Tex Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's still a good movie to this day. That's, oh, yeah. a, that's another one, you know, kids in a van, crazy people out in the woods, you know, off a little tiny road in a little tiny town. And, um, you know, so, was supposedly a very big fan of that film. Oh, really? Yeah. I, that was 74. I think, I think that came out in 74, didn't it? The real original had to, had to do with the way it made you so uncomfortable. I think he was, I mean, I, I can't speak for him, but I think right. uh, as a filmmaker, that film's ability to unnerve you 
especially scenes later in the film where they're basically torturing that poor girl, uh, really is hard to watch. Yeah. And uh, it's powerful filmmaking in the sense of that's what you're going for. Um, it works. Yeah. Without, without being insanely gory. Right. That's I mean, the other it's, thing. It's more, is... ma- it's more macabre than gory. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to do this show. Um, if people, you know, I was looking for, I was looking for your movie the other night to watch and I think, I think I found it on prime. I'm not sure. Um, prime. You can try Tubi. um, yeah, I, I want them to redo the sound. Cause when they did the dubbed version, the Mexican version or yeah. Mexican, the Spanish version, yeah. um, they improved the audio sounds a lot better. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you were telling me about that. Well, that's good. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to check that out and I'm also going to watch the follow up to the shining because it's bl- sounds like it blew you away that it's really worth the time to, to take and watch that. Fo- oh yeah. It's got, um, I didn't like it as much the second time I watched it. I have some, I have some issues with it, but if you're not judging the movie itself, but just the story, like Stephen King's story for the sequel. Yeah. It's such a fantastic sequel story. Story wise. Yeah. Story wise to follow up. So you're not, um, it, this isn't like, you know, Friday the 13th, two, three, four, five, 15 is your no, saying. No, it's yeah. such a rich, interesting story with uh, a complete, it's, it's completely new at the same time it has interesting elements from the original shining as well. I see. That's great. Yeah. yeah I'm going to check it out. All right, Ace. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, we've got more to thanks come. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for those listening, so according to our statistics, there's only a few of you left right now at the end of this show. And we've steadily lost people as the time has gone on. But what I'm going to do is uh, if you are one of the first three people to private message me through the website, go to spooksandspirits.com. If you're the first three people, I'm going to send you a a Spooks and Spirits t-shirt on us. And uh, we'll make it a special one. This will be exclusive for those who are super uber fans and and stick with us and listen to our show. Um, And feel free to put it on. It'll be great to see you guys wearing it take some pictures, put them on social, tag us in there so we can see it. All right, you guys, this has been episode 36 of Spirits and More Radio. We'll see you next time.
trying to say. Oh. My. God. to say what is it trying to say <laughs>